Mikael Blomqvist had slept for only a few hours because he had stayed up reading a detective novel by Elizabeth George. Not a particularly sensible thing to do. Ove Levin, the newspaper guru from Cerner Media, was due to present a strategy session for Millennium magazine later that morning, and Blomqvist ought to be rested and ready for combat. But he had no desire to be sensible. Only reluctantly did he get up and make himself an unusually strong cappuccino with his Jura Impressa X7, a machine which had been delivered to his home a while ago with a note saying, "'According to you, I don't know how to use it anyway.' It now stood there in the kitchen like a memorial to a better time. He no longer had any contact with the person who had sent it, nor did he feel that his work was particularly stimulating these days. Over the weekend he had even considered looking around for something new, and that was a pretty drastic idea for a man like Michael Blomqvist. Millennium had been his passion and his life, and many of his life's best, most dramatic events had occurred in connection with the magazine. But nothing lasts forever, perhaps not even a love for Millennium. Besides, this was not a good time to own a magazine dedicated to investigative journalism. All publications with ambitions for greatness were bleeding to death, and he could not help but reflect that while his own vision for Millennium may have been beautiful and true on some higher plane, it would not necessarily help the magazine survive. He went into the living room, sipping his coffee, and looked out at the waters of Riederfjärden. There was quite a storm blowing out there. From an Indian summer which had kept the city's outdoor restaurants and cafes open well into October, the weather had turned nightmarish, with gusts of wind and cloud bursts, and people hurried bent double through the streets. Blomqvist had stayed in all weekend, not only because of the weather. He had been planning revenge on an ambitious scale. But the scheme had come to nothing, and that was not like him, neither the former nor the latter. He was not an underdog, and unlike so many other big media figures in Sweden, he did not suffer from an inflated ego which needed constant boosting and soothing. On the other hand, he had been through a few tough years. Barely a month ago, the financial journalist William Bory had written a piece in Serna's Business Life magazine under the heading, Mikael Blomqvist's Days Are Over. The fact that the article had been written in the first place, and been given such prominence, was of course a sign that Blomqvist's position was still strong. No one would say that the column was well written or original, and it should have been easy to dismiss as yet another attack from a jealous colleague. But for some reason, incomprehensible in retrospect, the whole thing blew up. At first it might have been interpreted as a spirited discussion about journalism, but gradually the debate began to go off the rails. Although the serious press stayed out of it, all kinds of invective were being spewed out in social media. The offence came not only from financial journalists and industry types, who had reason to set upon their enemy now that he was temporarily weakened, but also from a number of younger writers who took the opportunity to make a name for themselves. They pointed out that Blomqvist was not on Twitter or Facebook, and should rather be seen as a relic of a bygone age, in which people could afford to work their way through whichever strange old volumes happened to take their fancy. And there were those who took the opportunity to join in the fun, and create amusing hashtags like Hashtag in Blomqvist's Day. It was all a lot of nonsense, and nobody could have cared less than Blomqvist. Or so he persuaded himself. It certainly did not help his cause that he had not had a major story since the Zalachenko affair, and that Millennium really was in a crisis. 
The circulation was still okay, with 21,000 subscribers, but since advertising revenue was falling dramatically, and there was no longer additional income from their successful books, and since one of the shareholders, Harriet Fanger, was not willing to put up any more capital, the board of directors had, against Blomqvist's wishes, allowed the Norwegian Serna newspaper empire to buy 30% of the shares. That was not as odd as it seemed, or not at first sight. Serna published weekly magazines and evening papers, and owned a large online dating site, and two premium TV channels, as well as a football team in Norway's top division, and ought not to have anything to do with a publication like Millennium. But Samner's representatives, especially the head of publications, Ove Levin, had assured them that the group needed a prestige product, and that everybody in the management team admired Millennium and wanted only for the magazine to go on exactly as before. "'We're not here to make money,' Levin said. "'We want to do something significant.' He immediately arranged for the magazine to receive a sizable injection of funds. At first, Senna did not interfere in the editorial work. It was business as usual, but with a slightly better budget. A new feeling of hope spread among the editorial team, sometimes even to Blomqvist, who felt that for once he would have time to devote himself to journalism instead of worrying about finances. But then, around the time the campaign against him got underway, he would never lose the suspicion that the Sauna group had taken advantage of the situation, the tone changed, and they started to apply pressure. Levin maintained that of course the magazine should continue with its in-depth investigations, its literary reporting, its social fervour. But surely it was not necessary for all the articles to be about financial irregularities, injustices, and political scandals. Writing about high society, about celebrities and premieres, could also produce brilliant journalism, so he said, and he spoke with passion about Vanity Fair and Esquire in America, about Gay Talese and his classic piece Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, and about Norman Mailer and Truman Capote and Tom Wolfe and heaven knows who else. Blomqvist did not actually have any objections to that, not at the time. Six months earlier he had himself written a long piece about the paparazzi industry, and as long as he could find a serious angle, then he was content to profile just about any lightweight. In fact, he always said it isn't the subject that determines good journalism, it's the reporter's attitude. Now, what he objected to was what he sensed was there between the lines. That this was the beginning of a longer-term assault, and that, to the group, Millennium was just like any other magazine a publication you can damn well shift around any which way you want until it becomes profitable. And colourless. So on Friday afternoon, when he heard that Levin had hired a consultant and commissioned several consumer surveys to present on Monday, Blomqvist had simply gone home. For a long time he had sat at his desk, or lain in bed composing various impassioned speeches about why Millennium had to remain true to its vision. There is rioting in the suburbs, an openly racist party sits in Riksdagen, the parliament. Intolerance is growing, fascism is on the rise, and there are homeless people and beggars everywhere. In many ways, Sweden has become a shameful nation. He came up with lots of fine and lofty words, and in his daydreams he enjoyed a series of fantastic triumphs, in which what he said was so relevant and compelling that the whole editorial team, and even the entire Sauna group, were roused from their delusions and decided to follow him as one. But when sobriety set in, he realized how little weight such words carry if nobody believes in them from a financial point of view. Money talks, 
bullshit walks. First and foremost, the magazine had to pay its way. Then they could go about changing the world. He began to wonder whether he could rustle up a good story. The prospect of a major revelation might boost the confidence of the editorial team and get them all to forget about Levin's surveys and forecasts. Blomqvist's big scoop about the Swedish government conspiracy that had protected Zalachenko turned him into a news magnet. Every day he received tips about irregularities and shady dealings. Most of it, to tell the truth, was rubbish. But just occasionally the most amazing story would emerge. A run-of-the-mill insurance matter or a trivial report of a missing person could be concealing something crucial. You never knew for sure. You had to be methodical and look through it all with an open mind. And so, on Saturday morning, he sat down with his laptop and his notebooks and picked his way through what he had. He kept going until five in the afternoon. He did come across the odd item which would probably have gotten him going ten years ago, but which did not now stir any enthusiasm. It was a classic problem. He of all people knew that. After a few decades in the profession, most things feel pretty familiar, and even if something looks like a good story in intellectual terms, it still might not turn you on. So when yet another squall of freezing rain whipped across the rooftops, he stopped working and turned to Elizabeth George. It wasn't just escapism, he persuaded himself. Sometimes the best ideas occur to you while your mind is occupied with something completely different. Pieces of the puzzle can suddenly fall into place. But he failed to come up with anything more constructive than the thought that he ought to spend more time lying around like this, reading good books. When Monday morning came, and with it yet more foul weather, he had ploughed through one and a half George novels, plus three old copies of The New Yorker, which had been cluttering up his bedside table.' 